Section 8 of Signs of Change by William Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Deborah Brabin. Useful Work versus Useless Toil, Part 1. The above title may strike some of my readers as strange. It is assumed by most people nowadays that all work is useful, and by most well-to-do people that all work is desirable. Most people, well-to-do or not, believe that even when a man is doing work which appears to be useless, he is earning his livelihood by it. He is employed, as the phrase goes. And most of those who are well-to-do cheer on their happy worker with congratulations and praises if he is only industrious enough and deprives himself of all pleasure and holidays in the sacred cause of labour. In short, it has become an article of the creed of modern morality that all labour is good in itself, a convenient belief to those who live on the labour of others. But as to those on whom they live, I recommend them not to take it on trust, but to look into the matter a little deeper. Let us grant first that the race of man must either labour or perish. Nature does not give us our livelihood gratis. We must win it by toil of some sort or degree. Let us see, then, if she does not give us some compensation for this compulsion to labour, since certainly in other matters she takes care to make the acts necessary to the continuance of life in the individual and the race not only endurable but even pleasurable. You may be sure that she does so, that it is of the nature of man, when he is not diseased, to take pleasure in his work under certain conditions. And yet we must say, in the teeth of the hypocritical praise of all labour whatsoever it may be, of which I have made mention, that there is some labour which is so far from being a blessing that it is a curse that it would be better for the community and for the worker if the latter were to fold his hands and refuse to work, and either die or let us pack him off to the workhouse or prison, which you will. Here, you see, are two kinds of work, one good, the other bad, one not far removed from a blessing, a lightening of life, the other a mere curse, a burden to life. What is the difference between them, then? This, one has hope in it, the other has not. It is manly to do the one kind of work, and manly also to refuse to do the other. What is the nature of the hope which, when it is present in work, makes it worth doing? It is threefold, I think. Hope of rest, hope of product, hope of pleasure in the work itself. And hope of these also in some abundance and of good quality. Rest enough and good enough to be worth having. Product worth having by one who is neither a fool nor an ascetic. Pleasure enough for all of us to be conscious of it while we are at work. Not a mere habit, the loss of which we shall feel as a fidgety man feels the loss of the bit of string he fidgets with. I have put the hope of rest first, because it is the simplest and most natural part of our hope. Whatever pleasure there is in some work, there is certainly some pain in all work. The beast-like pain of stirring up our slumbering energies to action. The beast-like dread of change when things are pretty well with us and the compensation for this animal pain is animal rest. We must feel while we are working that the time will come when we shall not have to work. Also the rest, when it comes, must be long enough to allow us to enjoy it. It must be longer than is merely necessary for us to recover the strength we have expended in working. And it must be animal rest also in this, that it must not be disturbed by anxiety, else we shall not be able to enjoy it. If we have this amount and kind of rest, we shall, so far, be no worse off than the beasts. As to the hope of product, 
I have said that nature compels us to work for that. It remains for us to look to it that we do really produce something and not nothing, or at least nothing that we want or are allowed to use. If we look to this and use our wills, we shall so far be better than machines. The hope of pleasure in the work itself. How strange that hope must seem to some of my readers, to most of them. Yet I think that to all living things there is a pleasure in the exercise of their energies, and that even beasts rejoice in being lithe and swift and strong. But a man at work, making something which he feels will exist because he is working at it and wills it, is exercising the energies of his mind and soul as well as of his body. Memory and imagination help him as he works. Not only his own thoughts, but the thoughts of the men of past ages guide his hands, and as a part of the human race he creates. If we work thus, we shall be men, and our days will be happy and eventful. Thus worthy work carries with it the hope of pleasure in rest, the hope of the pleasure in our using what it makes, and the hope of pleasure in our daily creative skill. All other work but this is worthless. It is slave's work. Mere toiling to live that we may live to toil. Therefore, since we have, as it were, a pair of scales in which to weigh the work now done in the world, let us use them. Let us estimate the worthiness of the work we do after so many thousand years of toil, so many promises of hope deferred, such boundless exultation over the progress of civilization and the gain of liberty. Now the first thing as to the work done in civilization, and the easiest to notice, is that it is portioned out very unequally amongst the different classes of society. First, there are people, not a few, who do no work and make no pretense of doing any. Next, there are people, and very many of them, who work fairly hard, though with abundant easements and holidays claimed and allowed. And lastly, there are people who work so hard that they may be said to do nothing else than work and are accordingly called the working classes, as distinguished from the middle classes and the rich or aristocracy, whom I have mentioned above. It is clear that this inequality presses heavily upon the working class, and must visibly tend to destroy their hope of rest, at least, and so in that particular make them worse off than mere beasts of the field. But that is not the sum and end of our folly in turning useful work into useless toil, but only the beginning of it. For first... As to the class of rich people doing no work, we all know that they consume a great deal while they produce nothing. Therefore, clearly, they have to be kept at the expense of those who do work, just as paupers have, and are a mere burden on the community. In these days there are many who have learned to see this, though they can see no further into the evils of our present system, and have formed no idea of any scheme for getting rid of this burden, though perhaps they have a vague hope that, Changes in the system of voting for members of the House of Commons may, as if by magic, tend in that direction. Moreover, this class, the aristocracy, once thought most necessary to the state, is scant of numbers and has now no power of its own, but depends on the support of the class next below it, the middle class. In fact, it is really composed either of the most successful men of that class or of their immediate descendants. As to the middle class, including the trading, manufacturing and professional people of our society, they do, as a rule, seem to work quite hard enough, and so at first sight might be thought to help the community and not burden it. But by far the greater part of them, though they work, do not produce, and even when they do produce, as in the case of those engaged, wastefully indeed, in the distribution of goods, or doctors, or genuine artists and literary men, 
they consume out of all proportion to their due share. The commercial and manufacturing part of them, the most powerful part, spend their lives and energies in fighting amongst themselves for their respective shares of the wealth which they force the genuine workers to provide for them. The others are almost wholly the hangers-on of these. They do not work for the public, but a privileged class. They are the parasites of property. Sometimes, as in the case of lawyers, undisguisedly so. Sometimes, as the doctors and others above mentioned, professing to be useful, but too often of no use save as supporters of the system of folly, fraud and tyranny of which they form a part. And all these, we must remember, have as a rule one aim in view. Not the production of utilities, but the gaining of a position neither for themselves or their children, in which they will not have to work at all. It is their ambition and the end of their whole lives to gain, if not for themselves yet at least for their children, the proud position of being obvious burdens on the community. For their work itself, in spite of the sham dignity with which they surround it, they care nothing. Save a few enthusiasts, men of science, art or letters, who, if they are not the salt of the earth, are at least, and owe oh, the pity of it, the salt of the miserable system of which they are the slaves, which hinders and thwarts them at every turn, and even sometimes corrupts them. Here, then, is another class, this time very numerous and all-powerful, which produces very little and consumes enormously, and is therefore in the main supported, as paupers are, by the real producers. The class that remains to be considered produces all that is produced, and supports both itself and the other classes, though it is placed in a position of inferiority to them. Real inferiority, mind you, involving a degradation both of mind and body. But it is a necessary consequence of this tyranny and folly that again many of these workers are not producers. The vast number of them, once more, are merely parasites of property. Some of them openly so, as the soldiers by land and sea who are kept on foot for the perpetuating of national rivalries and enmities, and for the purposes of the national struggle for the share of the product of unpaid labour. But besides this obvious burden on producers, and the scarcely less obvious one of domestic servants, there is first the army of clerks, shop assistants, and so forth, who are engaged in the service of the private war for wealth, which, as above said, is the real occupation of the well-to-do middle class. This is a larger body of workers than might be supposed for it includes, amongst others, all those engaged in what I should call competitive salesmanship, or, to use a less dignified word, the puffery of wares, which has now got to such a pitch that there are many things which cost far more to sell than they do to make. Next there is the mass of people employed in making all those articles of folly and luxury, the demand for which is the outcome of the existence of the rich non-producing classes, things which people leading a manly and uncorrupted life would not ask for or dream of. These things, whoever may gainsay me, I will forever refuse to call wealth. They are not wealth, but waste. Wealth is what nature gives us and what a reasonable man can make out of the gifts of nature for his reasonable use. The sunlight, the fresh air, the unspoiled face of the earth, food, raiment, and housing necessary and decent the storing up of knowledge of all kinds and the power of disseminating it, means of free communication between man and man, works of art, the beauty which man creates when he is most a man, most aspiring and thoughtful, all things which serve the pleasure of people, free, manly and uncorrupted. This is wealth. 
nor can I think of anything worth having which does not come under one or other of these heads. But think, I beseech you, of the product of England, the workshop of the world. And will you not be bewildered, as I am, at the thought of the mass of things which no sane man could desire, but which our useless toil makes and sells? Now, further, there is even a sadder industry yet, which is forced on many, very many, of our workers. The making of wares which are necessary to them and their brethren, because they are an inferior class. For if many men live without producing, nay, must live lives so empty and foolish that they force a great part of the workers to produce wares which no one needs, not even the rich. It follows that most men must be poor, and living as they do on wages from those whom they support, cannot get for their use the goods which men naturally desire, but must put up with miserable makeshifts for them, with coarse food that does not nourish, with rotten raiment which does not shelter, with wretched houses which may well make a town-dweller in civilization look back with regret to the tent of the nomad tribe or the cave of the prehistoric savage. Nay, the workers must even lend a hand to the great industrial invention of the age, adulteration, and by its help produce for their own use shams and mockeries of the luxuries of the rich. For the wage-earners must always live as the wage-payers bid them, and their very habits of life are forced on them by their masters. But it is a waste of time to try to express in words due contempt of the productions of the much-praised cheapness of our epoch. It must be enough to say that this cheapness is necessary to the system of exploiting on which modern manufacture rests. In other words, our society includes a great mass of slaves, who must be fed, clothed, housed and amused as slaves, and that their daily necessity compels them to make the slave wares, whose use is the perpetuation of their slavery. To sum up, then, concerning the manner of work in civilised states, these states are composed of three classes. A class which does not even pretend to work, a class which pretends to work but which produces nothing, and a class which works but is compelled by the other two classes to do work which is often unproductive. Civilization therefore wastes its own resources, and will do so as long as the present system lasts. These are cold words with which to describe the tyranny under which we suffer. Try then to consider what they mean. There is a certain amount of natural material and of natural forces in the world, and a certain amount of labour-power inherent in the persons of the men that inhabit it. Men, urged by their necessities and desires, have laboured for many thousands of years at the task of subjugating the forces of nature and of making the natural material useful to them. To our eyes, since we cannot see into the future, that struggle with nature seems nearly over, and the victory of the human race over her nearly complete. And looking backwards to the time when history first began... We note that the progress of that victory has been far swifter and more startling within the last two hundred years than ever before. Surely, therefore, we moderns ought to be in all ways vastly better off than any who have gone before us. Surely we ought one and all of us to be wealthy, to be well furnished with the good things which our victory over nature has won for us. But what is the real fact? Who will dare to deny that the great mass of civilised men are poor? So poor are they that it is mere childishness troubling ourselves to discuss whether perhaps they are in some ways a little better off than their forefathers. They are poor, 
Nor can their poverty be measured by the poverty of a resourceless savage, for he knows of nothing else than his poverty. That he should be cold, hungry, houseless, dirty, ignorant, all that is to him as natural as that he should have a skin. But for us, for the most of us, civilization has bred desires which she forbids us to satisfy, and so is not merely a niggard but a torturer also. Thus, then, have the fruits of our victory over nature been stolen from us. Thus has compulsion by nature to labour in hope of rest, gain, and pleasure been turned into compulsion by man to labour in hope of living to labour. What shall we do, then? Can we mend it? Well, remember once more that it is not our remote ancestors who achieved the victory over nature, but our fathers, nay, our very selves. For us to sit hopeless and helpless, then, would be a strange folly indeed. Be sure that we can amend it. What, then, is the first thing to be done? We have seen that modern society is divided into two classes, one of which is privileged to be kept by the labour of the other, that is, it forces the other to work for it, and takes from this inferior class everything that it can take from it, and uses the wealth so taken to keep its own members in a superior position, to make them beings of a higher order than the others, longer lived, more beautiful, more honoured, more refined than those of the other class. I do not say that it troubles itself about its members being positively long-lived, beautiful, or refined, but merely insists that they shall be so relatively to the inferior class. As also it cannot use the labour-power of the inferior class fairly in producing real wealth, it wastes it wholesale in the production of rubbish. It is this robbery and waste on the part of the minority which keeps the majority poor. If it could be shown that it is necessary for the preservation of society that this should be submitted to, little more could be said on the matter, save that the despair of the oppressed majority would probably at some time or other destroy society. But it has been shown, on the contrary, even by such incomplete experiments, for instance, as cooperation, so-called, that the existence of a privileged class is by no means necessary for the production of wealth, but rather for the government of the producers of wealth, or, in other words, for the upholding of privilege. The first step to be taken, then, is to abolish a class of men privileged to shirk their duties as men, thus forcing others to do the work which they refuse to do. All must work according to their ability and so produce what they consume. That is, each man should work as well as he can for his own livelihood, and his livelihood should be assured to him. That is to say... All the advantages which society would provide for each and all of its members. Thus, at last, would true society be founded. It would rest on equality of condition. No man would be tormented for the benefit of another, nay, no one man would be tormented for the benefit of society. Nor indeed can that order be called society, which is not upheld for the benefit of every one of its members. But since men live now, Bad as they live when so many people do not produce at all and when so much work is wasted, it is clear that, under conditions where all produced and no work was wasted, not only would everyone work with the certain hope of gaining a due share of wealth by his work, but also he could not miss his due share of rest. Here, then, are two out of the three kinds of hope mentioned above as an essential part of worthy work, assured to the worker. When class robbery is abolished... Every man will reap the fruits of his labour. Every man will have due rest. Leisure, that is. Some socialists might say we need not go any further than this. 
it is enough that the worker should get the full produce of his work and that his rest should be abundant. But though the compulsion of man's tyranny is thus abolished, I yet demand compensation for the compulsion of nature's necessity. As long as the work is repulsive, it will still be a burden which must be taken up daily, and even so would mar our life, even though the hours of labour were short. What we want to do is add to our wealth without diminishing our pleasure. Nature will not be finally conquered till our work becomes a part of the pleasure of our lives. That first step of freeing people from the compulsion to labour needlessly will at least put us on the way towards this happy end, for we shall then have time and opportunities for bringing it about. As things are now, between the waste of labour power in mere idleness and its waste in unproductive work, it is clear that the world of civilization is supported by a small part of its people. When all were working usefully for its support, the share of work which each would have to do would be but small. If our standard of life were about on the footing of what well-to-do and refined people now think desirable, we shall have labour power to spare and shall in short be as wealthy as we please. It will be easy to live. If we were to wake up some morning now under our present system and find it easy to live, that system would force us to set to work at once and make it hard to live. We should call that developing our resources, or some such fine name. The multiplication of labour has become a necessity for us, and as long as that goes on, no ingenuity in the invention of machines will be of any real use to us. Each new machine will cause a certain amount of misery among the workers whose special industry it may disturb, so many of them will be reduced from skilled to unskilled workmen, and then gradually matters will slip into their due grooves, and all will work apparently smoothly again. And if it were not that all this is preparing revolution, things would be for the greater part of men just as they were before the new wonderful invention. But when revolution has made it easy to live, when all are working harmoniously together, and there is no one to rob the worker of his time, that is to say, his life, in those coming days there will be no compulsion on us to go on producing things we do not want, no compulsion on us to labour for nothing. We shall be able calmly and thoughtfully to consider what we shall do with our wealth of labour power. Now for my part I think the first use we ought to make of that wealth, of that freedom, should be to make all our labour, even the commonest and most necessary, pleasant to everybody. For thinking over the matter carefully, I can see that the one course which will certainly make life happy in the face of all accidents and troubles is to take a pleasurable interest in all the details of life. Unless perchance you think that an assertion too universally accepted to be worth making, let me remind you how entirely modern civilization forbids it, with what sordid and even terrible details it surrounds the life of the poor, what a mechanical and empty life she forces on the rich, and how rare a holiday it is for any of us to feel ourselves a part of nature, and unhurriedly, thoughtfully, and happily to note the course of our lives amidst all the little links of events which connect them with the lives of others, and build up the great whole of humanity. But such a holiday our whole lives might be, if we were resolute to make all our labour reasonable and pleasant. But we must be resolute indeed, for no half-measures will help us here. It has been said already that our present joyless labour, and our lives, scared and anxious as the life of a hunted beast, are forced upon us by the present system of producing for the profit of the privileged classes. It is necessary to state what this means. Under the present system of wages and capital, the manufacturer, most absurdly so called, since a manufacturer means a person who makes with his hands, having a monopoly of the means whereby the power to labour inherent in every man's body can be used for production, is the master of those who are not so privileged. 
He and he alone is able to make use of this labour power, which, on the other hand, is the only commodity by means of which his capital, that is to say the accumulated product of past labour, can be made productive to him. He therefore buys the labour power of those who are bare of capital and can only live by selling it to him. His purpose in this transaction is to increase his capital, to make it breed. It is clear that if he paid those with whom he makes his bargain the full value of their labour, that is to say, all that they produced, he would fail in his purpose. But since he is the monopolist of the means of productive labour, he can compel them to make a bargain better for him and worse for them than that. Which bargain is that after they have earned their livelihood, estimated according to a standard high enough to ensure their peaceable submission to his mastership, the rest, and by far the larger part as a matter of fact, of what they produce, shall belong to him, shall be his property, to do as he likes with, to use or abuse at his pleasure. Which property is, as we all know, jealously guarded by army and navy, police and prison, in short by that huge mass of physical force which superstition, habit, fear of death by starvation, ignorance, in one word, among the propertyless masses, enables the propertied classes to use for the subjection of their slaves. Now at other times, other evils resulting from this system may be put forward. What I want to point out now is the impossibility of our attaining to attractive labour under this system, and to repeat that it is this robbery, there is no other word for it, which wastes the available labour power of the civilised world, forcing many men to do nothing, and many, very many more, to do nothing useful, and forcing those who carry on really useful labour to most burdensome overwork. For understand once for all that the manufacturer aims primarily at producing, by means of the labour he has stolen from others, not goods, but profits, that is, the wealth that is produced over and above the livelihood of his workmen and the wear and tear of his machinery. Whether that wealth is real or sham means nothing to him. If it sells and yields him a profit, it is all right. I have said that, owing to there being rich people who have more money than they can spend reasonably, and who therefore buy sham wealth, there is waste on that side. And also that, owing to there being poor people who cannot afford to buy things which are worth making, there is waste on that side. So that the demand which the capitalist supplies is a false demand. The market in which he sells is rigged by the miserable inequalities produced by the robbery of the system of capital and wages. End of section 8